perfection. The process of cooperating with God. People don't need to accomplish something. They only need to get their hearts right. Once their hearts are right, everything else follows in the ordinary course. In any event, life is not the time to enjoy exaltation. That comes later. Life is the time to overcome vanity, pride, and selfishness. It is the time to lose oneself. When one does that, it doesn't matter that he still has a great gulf between himself and perfection. He is, nonetheless, perfect. Submission is perfect. However, there is still a great work ahead of everyone seeking to attain exaltation. This life's agenda is very limited even though the full effort involved will last many lifetimes. Men and women are not here to get exalted. They are here to continue progression which began a long time before their current birth. At this moment, they are being added upon by what they experience here. At some point, they will have received what they need in the sphere and will be able to move on to the next stage of development. When they have gained everything they need from this life, they will have received the fullness from God. It is called the fullness because it is all that can be obtained here. It is not possible, however, to inherit everything God ultimately offers while here. For that, it will require a great work even beyond the grave, as Joseph put it. Indeed, it isn't even possible to fully understand God while here in this life. Therefore, I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 31. In the Matthew text, Christ unequivocally limited this to his Father. See Matthew 3, paragraph 26, here, perfection is achieved by both Christ and his Father. Assuming the Matthew text is correct, the difference is significant. It is another confirmation that anyone who is mortal, including the Lord, stands in jeopardy every hour, see 1 Corinthians 1, paragraph 64. He simply could not claim perfection while in mortality because mortality is a time of change, challenge, and temptation. After all, he was tempted while mortal, just as every human soul is tempted, see Hebrews 1, paragraph 11. Though he chose to give no heed to it, he was nevertheless tempted, see Joseph Smith History Part 16, paragraph 6. While mortal, he looked to the Father in all things, see John 5, paragraph 5. After concluding his time in mortality and achieving the resurrection of the dead, he was given all power in heaven and on earth, see Matthew 13, paragraph 4. Therefore, if the Matthew text is correct and the differences are accounted for, then the admonition of Christ for one's own perfection is not just an earthly endeavor. It is an invitation to follow him and his Father into a loftier state, as well, one where the final realization will come only as one is able to endure greater glory than a mortal may possess, see Abraham 6, paragraph 2 and Genesis 1, paragraph 1. It is good to know this commandment is possible to accomplish, see 1 Nephi 1, paragraph 10. It is hard to conceive of following the Son in this way. Yet it is he who pronounced it and he who has promised to share the throne of his Father with all who will come to him, see Revelation 1, paragraph 20. A harmonious symmetry of light, majesty, holiness, glory, and power are all around him who is perfection.
When I read the admonition to be ye therefore perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect, I can hardly grasp how that gulf between us could be bridged. 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 31 I understand about the Lord's atonement. I have certainly been the beneficiary of it and will continue to be so. When I consider the infinite gulf between his and his father's perfection and my own imperfection, I am left completely stupefied at the idea it is even possible. Nevertheless, he gives no command which he does not provide means to obey. He provides the means, and his father ordained the laws by which it can be done, and they provide us with free will and the capacity to choose, but we must choose. We must accept. We must press forward holding their hands in order to arrive at last, after an infinitely long journey, in the courts of heaven itself, fit to reside there. Be ye therefore perfect. And start on that this moment. For you haven't another moment to spare. The word perfect, as used in the New Testament, comes from the Latin Vulgate perfectus, meaning complete, finished and is a translation of the Greek. Thelios which means, having attained the end, complete, perfect, full-grown, mature, initiated into the mystic rites, the initiate, consecrated, having finished the course, etc. and can be interpreted ritually as completing the ascent. The word perfect, tilios, does not mean perfect digestion, perfect eyesight, perfect memory, and so on. It is a special word meaning keeping the whole law. In a ritual setting, among the connotations of this word, this term refers to preparing a person to be presented before God in priestly action. Early Christians continued to use this word in this way in connection with their sacraments and their ordinances. Hugh Nibley saw that the meaning of the word teleos is namely living up to an agreement or covenant without fault, as the Father keeps the covenants he makes with us the completely initiated who has both qualified for initiation and completed it as teleos, literally gone all the way, fulfilling all requirements, every last provision of God's command. Persecution Persecution is what happens when an idea cannot be opposed on its merit. Persecution is the product of fear, typically experienced by those lacking knowledge. There are two great competing forces in the whole of creation, love and fear. And blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 19 It is not just persecution, but persecution for his name's sake that makes you blessed. When you are doing what you should for his name's sake, you are likely to provoke persecution. He will later explain this is almost inevitable. It won't be because you are provoking it by your obnoxious behavior. It is because people will question your sincerity and commitment. The world expects hypocrites. They regard everyone with suspicion. And, let's face it, most charlatans adopt religion as one of their cloaks. The kind of persecution which produces the kingdom of heaven is, of course, martyrdom. Blessed are those who are willing to endure persecution for his name's sake. For they are those who are willing to develop faith which cannot be obtained in any other way. It is through the sacrifice of all things that faith necessary for salvation is developed. Sometimes we bring persecution upon ourselves because we are unwise. The Lord addresses that. 
We are to take offenses, but not give them. When we unwisely give offenses and cause persecution, that is not for his name's sake. There is a balance between wisdom and righteousness. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 19. The world's first reaction to followers of Christ will be skepticism, which will result in an attempt to measure the follower's sincerity. Until he's been tested by the world, there is no reason for the world to believe anything he has to say. They will revile him, thinking he is just another fraud. They will persecute him as a charlatan, even though he is his disciple. They will say all manner of evil against him falsely, all the while thinking they are only giving the follower what he deserves. This is how the world decides if he is actually following him. They have seen and heard no end of those who have claimed to follow him, and this man is no different in their eyes. That is, until he has actually followed him, borne their criticism, returned good for evil, and shown how devoted he is. When he has proven his devotion, then some few will soften their hearts. Others will remain unwilling to admit the truth, even when it is apparent he is his. This is the way in which Christ lived his life. The teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and at Bountiful are an explanation of him. They are an explanation of the lives of any who follow him. To follow him and to learn of his ways always requires experiencing some of what he experienced. While he assumed a full measure of these teachings, his followers are only required to experience some of what he did, which allows them to understand him. But these teachings are meant to be lived. They are meant to be applied and tested. If a person tests them, he or she will discover him through them. They will also come to know and understand the prophets who went before, some of whom will, invariably, come to succor their fellow saints. This is always the pattern when the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is lived on the earth. See also the glossary entry, Martyr. Pestilence and now behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste lest there should be confusion, which brings pestilence, TNC 50, paragraph 6. Pestilence is not just bugs and vermin. It is also confusion, disorder, and chaos. Pharaoh A title that originally meant great house or great family. Pharaoh was the father over Egypt who taught and led them. Over time, however, this title came to mean a king or tyrant who controlled people. Given the Egyptian preoccupation with the afterlife, the name is likely related to an expectation for the eternities and not merely a description of the office held in mortality. Plan of Salvation The Plan of Education the plan of knowing God and the principles of godliness. Possess your soul. And seek the face of the Lord always, that in patience you may possess your souls, and you shall have eternal life. TNC 101, paragraph 6. To possess one's soul is to have body and spirit inseparably connected in a resurrected and immortal state. 
TNC 86, paragraph 2 explains, Now, verily I say unto you that through the redemption which is made for you is brought to pass the resurrection from the dead. And the spirit and the body is the soul of man, and the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. To possess one's soul, therefore, is to have the resurrection. TNC 38, paragraph 6 builds on this by saying that while in that resurrected state, one will inherit eternal life. This means to receive exaltation. So the concept that these words are covering is the concept of exaltation and receiving, in the resurrection, a celestial inheritance. Power of God The Father's power was not used only to create us, but continues to preserve us. We do not have a moment from our birth to our death in which we are not reliant upon God for the continuance of our existence. God created us from the beginning and is preserving us from day to day. Mosiah 1, paragraph 8. Without Him, we would not be preserved, or in other words, we would not stay created or organized. We would dissolve into the original, pre-creation, primordial constituent parts. We would be uncreated if we lost His preserving power. The full extent of our dependence upon the Father becomes clear when we are told He is lending us breath. This preserving power is also described in TNC 86, paragraph 1. And the light which now shines, which gives you light, is through Him who enlightens your eyes, which is the same light that quickens your understandings, which light proceeds forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which gives life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sits upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. The full extent of God's involvement in our daily existence cannot be overstated. It is not limited to an original launch or big bang. He did not just wind up a watch and let it run on its own. He is the power behind all things and gives life to all things through His power. This description puts God at the center. However far the concentric circles may proceed from Him in all directions, He remains in the center throne from which His power continues to provide the light which sustains it all. This involvement is immediate, continuing and intimate. See also the glossary entry, Holy Spirit. Power of Godliness The ability to open the heavens in order to be given assignments, confirm revelation, and receive blessings from God. All power is tied to heaven. When the powers of heaven are withdrawn from someone, then their authority comes to an end, and they have no power. The power of godliness must be gained through Jesus Christ, access to whom is available to all men and women on equal terms. Godliness is different from virtue. It is even different from righteousness. Godliness requires one to become godlike in one's sentiments and in one's meekness before him. Whether men understand you or attribute motives to you, the relationship is between you and the Lord. Godliness is when your walk here is along the path he has chosen for you. The power of godliness is inseparably connected with the ordinances. TNC 82, paragraph 12. CTNC 139, paragraph 5. Without the power of godliness, the current rites are much like the apostate world Christ condemned in his initial visit with Joseph Smith. 
See Joseph Smith History Part 2, Paragraph 5. The power of godliness and the authority of the priesthood are connected with seeing the face of God, even the Father. TNC 82, Paragraph 12. Powers of Heaven A title referring to a specific group with status on the other side of the veil. A proper noun, not just an abstraction. In the afterlife there are different rungs on Jacob's ladder where different powers are fixed, angel, archangel, principality, power, dominion, throne, cherubim, and seraphim. They may all be called powers of heaven. These powers have no desire to control or compel others to rise on Jacob's ladder. Each rung is a developmental stage of growth through which all must pass if they want to ascend nearer to God. Each individual on Jacob's ladder should be moving toward perfection. Pray always. To retain a personal connection with heaven. Particularly, to retain that connection through the Holy Ghost and through Christ's Spirit that one seeks to always have. If this is a lively connection, one is able to avoid being sifted. If it lapses into darkness, one is vulnerable to being taken captive. Pray, prayer. The worthy speech that ascends to heaven that is uttered by the faithful. There is no magic formula for communicating with God. No list of what is to be said or repeated. No vain, meaning ineffective, repetitions. He gets it even before man speaks. The act of prayer is a formal way of showing God the following, respect, by doing what he has asked. Devotion, by showing submission to him. Obedience, by keeping the commandment to pray always. 2 Nephi 14, paragraph 3. And companionship, by taking the time to be alone with him. You take thought about what you care for, but they are not what the Lord knows you need. Your cares are merely the tiniest of obstacles given you to remind you to pray. The Father operates on a much grander scale, dealing with the salvation of souls. He will use the man or woman of prayer as the means of accomplishing a great deal more than they imagined. Pray. Ask simply. It is not necessary to be elaborate or long-winded. State clearly what you believe you need. Accept what then comes in his answer. Trust he knows more than you. Trust he can give you what you need, even if you hadn't even thought about it as a need. Talk like you are addressing your most intimate friend and have nothing to hide. Tell him about your regrets, hopes, frustrations, concerns, fears, and confusion. Before long you will discover that whatever you care about, God also cares about. He can give perspective that changes everything. Prayer should not recognize the distance between us and God but should become the way we close that distance. See also the glossary entry, Voice of God. Priest one who has authority to perform ordinances, as described in the Book of Mormon. It is also an office in the Mormon movement that was established by a visit from John the Baptist with Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, May 15, 1829, prior to the organization of a church. Mormons believe priests have the authority to baptize, as well as preach, teach, exhort, and expound. 